Good morning. Uh, we're in a continuation of a series that we've been in, and we're, we're, kind of, we're starting to crest now, and we'll be landing the plane shortly, but it's called The Whole Story, and it's a series about the overarching story of the Scriptures. Um, your Bible, as ancient as it is and complex as it seems in front of you, these authors are trying to tell one unified story that points to Jesus Christ. And so we've been, we've kind of covered the high points in the Old Testament, and last week we turned the corner to the New Testament and to the Messiah's arrival, this promised offspring of Eve and, and of all of her descendants. Um, the, God continued to promise that a Messiah is coming who is going to make all of the sad things come untrue, and he's going to put our um, world and our hearts back into order again. And so last week, the Messiah arrived, and he said the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. This morning, we're turning to his sacrificial death. Now, we talk a lot, a lot, lot, lot about the life of Jesus around here. We're not talking as much about that this morning in this message, though we are going to jump back into Matthew's gospel in chapter 8 in a few weeks as soon as we're done with this series. So we will be talking about Jesus and his healing and his goodness and the way that he interacts with people a lot. But this morning, we're focused on a final statement of his from the cross. And this is what our text is for this morning. It's out of John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, so from the cross, he said, I am thirsty. He's in a moment of execution by the Romans and by the Jewish leaders and many of the people uh, of Israel. And he said, I'm thirsty. And somebody on a branch, on a stick, they put up this sour wine to him and he took a drink of it or he tasted it, and that was certainly not going to quench his thirst. And at that moment, he said, it is finished. Some of the, the biblical record, Mark's gospel, for instance, says, and he gave up his spirit. He bowed his head here and gave up his spirit. So the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. He's called his people to repent and believe. Here's where we've been so far. God created a kingdom and he is the king, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death, but God promised to defeat the serpent who deceived them through the seed or the offspring of the woman, who is also the offspring of Abraham. Through Abraham's family and specifically Judah's royal offspring, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute, and the substitute would be revealed through the prophet Isaiah as the suffering servant. Through this servant, this Messiah, and the work of the Holy Spirit, God would establish a new covenant, and he would give la lasting life to his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is the one whom through whom all of these promises find fulfillment. That's where we were last week. This week comes first in his sacrificial death for sin. I want to just pray this morning and just ask the Spirit of God to speak. Father, would you speak to us through your Spirit? Would you give us ears to hear? And would you help us to just clear away competing thoughts and to focus this morning? Would you give me presence of mind? Um, would you help us to just settle in and to, to all of us as, as one people uh, be present this morning? We give our time to you and we're thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Last words have a way of gripping and instructing us. Have you ever been compelled by people's last words? Um, this is what Shakespeare said about last words. When Shakespeare speaks, we got we to gotta listen, but sometimes the way that he speaks, it's hard to understand. So I'm going to read this slow. It's poetic. This is what Shakespeare writes. He says, They say the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. Where words are scarce, they're seldom spent in vain, for they breathe truth that breathe their words in pain. A sociology professor at uh, Trinity University, Michael C. Curl, he has amassed a tremendous amount of material on people that are dying. He's written um, academic papers and books, and just, just uh, this has been the focus of his academic work. And he says this, he says, people need the belief that the conclusion of their existence is a consummation, a beginning of sorts, as opposed to a mere cessation or an ending. He says, there's something about a good ending, right? A piece of music can be only so-so, but boy, if it's got the big bang at the end, you remember it. Some last words are profound and worshipful. They're a big bang of sorts. Other last words are spent on goodbyes. Some are tragic. Sometimes a person's humor wins the day. I've got a sampling of people's last words for you this morning, and I'm going to start in the humor category, and you have no idea what's coming for you right now. <laughs> Louise Marie Therese. She lived in the 1700s. She's also known as the Black Nun of Marais. She was a French woman, and she let one rip while she was dying. And she said in French, good, a woman who can fart is not dead. <laughs> Those were her last words. I kid you not. You didn't think today was going to start like that, did you? Bob Hope's wife, a woman named Dolores, uh, Bob Hope was a comedian of our age. Uh, she asked him where he wanted to be buried, and his answer was, surprise me. Turning the corner from the humorous to the tragic, Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all. Think about what that man lived through and led England through. And he's on the doorstep of eternity and he says, I'm bored. I'm bored with it all. Kurt Cobain was a fam uh, my favorite musician in high school. Um, he said, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Wrong. A woman named Joan Crawford, uh, she was a famous actress in the 1920s and 30s. I had never heard of her, but this quote is so powerful. Um, she, in her dying moment, she overheard her maid praying for her. And I'm going to change the language a little bit here. She said, dang it, don't you dare ask God to help me. Now, We've looked at some humor. We've looked at some tragedy. How about just like goodbyes? People are, are surrounded by loved ones in the moment of death. Michael Landon. Do you remember Michael Landon, the dad from Little House on the Prairie? He was on another show, something about an angel. What was it called? Touched by an angel. Is that right? Highway to heaven. Whatever. It was something like that. 
he's surrounded by his, he, he died of cancer in 1991 and he's surrounded by his family and his son told him that it was time to move on. And Landon said, you're right, it's time. I love you all. Think about that moment, a father and a son, he's acquiescing to his son. His son now is the lead of the family. Dad, it's okay to go. You're right, I love you all. Desi Arnaz, uh, he was married to Lucille Ball, famous actress, comedian in the 1950s. Um, his dying words over the telephone to her were, I love you too, honey. Good luck with your show. <laughs> Profound and worshipful, worshipful. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. Um, his wife, uh, or, I'm sorry, his sister, Mona, she recorded his last words as, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. President James Buchanan, he's the president who came right before Abraham Lincoln. He said, oh, Lord, God almighty, as you will. Dwight Eisenhower, he led the Allied forces in World War II and then later became president in the 1950s. His words were, I want to go, God take me. Jesus of Nazareth, it is finished. Remember that quote by the sociology professor, Michael Curl. There's something about a good ending, right? A piece of music can be only so-so, but if it's got that big bang at the end, you remember it. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, his last words have to be the most profound in all of history, the most famous in all of history, which is understandable. Why? Because Jesus' words were breathed out on behalf of humanity. They're some of the most healing words ever spoken. Have you ever thought about it is finished like that? Words that can heal, words of hope. It's important for us to recognize historically that Jesus was born 1,500 years into a long and constant system of animal sacrifice. This system of animal sacrifice it started to unfold in the garden with Adam and Eve as they had sinned against God and were about to be exiled out of the garden. God, they had, they had covered themselves with fig leaves. They were temporary. They weren't really doing the job, and God clothe them with the skins of animals. This is the first recorded death in the scriptures where he, he, there's a kind of atonement or a covering through sacrifice here, the innocent giving up life for the guilty. It would continue and revelation would continue to develop with a guy named Abraham where God made covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17 and then later on as well, God would continue to unfold this covenant. But we noticed that we, we talked about this weeks ago where God, he, he had Abraham prepare some animals and lay them over against each other. And so he cut these animals in half and he made an aisle between them. And the way that you would make a covenant with somebody in ancient times is you would walk, both parties would walk up and down this aisle between these sacrificed animals. And you were in effect saying, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals if I do not uphold my end of this covenant. Well, in that covenant with Abraham, God himself walked up and down. Abraham didn't walk them at all. So God was signaling that he himself, if humanity falls and fails this covenant with God, God himself would intervene and would uphold both man's side of the agreement and also God's side of the agreement. And then animal sacrifice really came into fruition in constancy and it was ratified by, 
as God gave animal sacrifice, he gave the law to Moses and the temple, the sacrificial system was instituted. And so this is what Chris Bruno writes about Jesus's sacrificial death. He says this, Finally, here was a sacrifice with Jesus that would pay the price of sin once and for all. For centuries and centuries, the people of God had offered sacrifices that only pointed forward. Those sacrifices, they'd never finished the job. The next year, the next month, the next day, there would be another sacrifice to offer, but no longer. As the end drew near, in spite of his anguish, in spite of his pain, Jesus could confidently say, it is finished. These are his words from the cross on behalf of humanity. This morning, we don't need new truth. We don't need something shiny and new. We don't need to discover something new. We need to remember as of first importance, the truth that we already possess. Here is what our New Testaments say about the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to, if you've got your Bibles or black Bibles around the room, I want you to turn with me and just follow along here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18 or fire up, turn on your Bible, like whatever you need to do. Follow me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This is the Apostle Paul writing here. He says, the word of the cross The word of Jesus' crucifixion is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the, quote, power of God. For Jews, they demand signs. So they're wanting miracles. They're wanting you to prove it through your exercise of power. He writes, the Greeks seek wisdom. They want eloquence and they want convincing arguments. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's what we're going to be about. We're going to be about this historical objective event in real history. That's what we're going to be about. But Paul writes, it is a stumbling block that just stumbles up the Jews and it is folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. And then Paul says, personally, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. He'll go on to say, and I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So I'm not coming with these bulletproof arguments. I'm actually coming with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. For what purpose? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man or my eloquence, but that your faith would rest in the power of God. What has he just previously called the power of God? He's called it the cross. The word of the cross is the power of God. He would write to a young pastor, uh, protege in your New Testaments in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to turn there, 1 Timothy 2.8. He'd say to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. So resurrected, but at one point he was dead. He is the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, again, Paul would say, for I, he's writing to the church. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance, not second, not third. It's not on the edges of importance. It's right there in the central place of importance. I delivered to you as of first importance 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, which means in accordance with the Hebrew Bible, what the prophets had been saying for centuries. He died in accordance with the scriptures and was raised on the third day. A man named David Pryor, he writes, we never move on from the cross, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. We talk a lot here about we're not going to move on from the gospel. It's going to be the waters, the good news of Jesus is going to be the waters that we swim in. It's just we're going to consistently come back to it and rehearse it and try to move deeper and deeper and deeper into our understanding of its significance and just how profound and powerful the fact that God has become a man and has lived for you and I and has died for you and I and has been raised for you and I, just how significant that is. We're going to continue to rehearse rehearse it and live on it and find our way by it. We don't ever master this message. Oh, yeah, 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 I got this. I'm on to the deeper things. No, no, no. Do not pass go. Back to start. We're going to start again in the gospel, rooting ourselves in the gospel. Now, it is finished. This word of Jesus from the cross, it has implications. First, Jesus's words are a development and this long line of God's historical promises. They're a fulfillment. It is finished is actually a fulfillment of God's first promise that's uttered within earshot of Adam and Eve. He's actually speaking to the serpent who deceived them. The Old Testament calls him the Satan. About, these words are uttered about God's Messiah. He says, you shall bruise, you serpent shall bruise his head he, rather, shall bruise your head, but you, serpent, will bruise his heel. What God is speaking of here is you're going to give him a blow that looks fatal but will be non-permanent. He is going to give you a blow that will ultimately be fatal and permanent. He is going to completely disarm you of power. The serpent, for reasons that I don't understand, was allowed to continue to exist he would continue to harass God's people, but God would continue for his people. He would continue to come through on his promises for his people. And he'd reveal himself to this man named Abraham. This is a bit of just recap. Through Abraham, he made covenant with Abraham, and he said, through you, all of the nations of the earth will experience blessing. I'm going to, kings are going to come from you, and I'm going to give you people and land. And Israel rehearsed these promises for centuries and centuries and centuries. The prophets would continue to say, thus says the Lord, keeping these promises in the imaginations of the people of Israel. And God's revelation of this remedy that a Messiah is coming would continue to develop. And he would utter a promise through a prophet named Isaiah. Uh, it's a beautiful promise from God. You can find it in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Uh, 52 and 53, they're, they're long. They're not arduous, but we're not going to read all of them today. What I just want to do is highlight a few industrial strength lines from Isaiah chapter 53. They give us an understanding of, of what it is finished means for people who are willing to depend on the most healing and globally powerful words ever spoken. Isaiah 53, these lines will be on your screen. And 53 verse 4, 
Isaiah is writing, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he's writing about this coming suffering servant, the Messiah. Surely he has borne or loaded up onto himself our griefs. The Hebrew word for griefs there, um, it, it has this idea of sickness. And he has carried our sorrows. The Hebrew word for sorrows there carries the idea of suffering and grief and pain. So this in Hebrew is a couplet. And what, what he's saying is he's born or he's loaded onto himself and he's carrying also. It means that on the cross, it, it wants us to, these, the way that the prophets would write using these couplets, they would, uh, they would want to emphasize that Jesus, this Messiah, is going to carry something for humanity. He would carry our sickness and he would load on himself our suffering and grief. Some of you need to just hear this this morning. Jesus is acquainted with your grief. He's acquainted with your sickness. He's acquainted with your suffering. As a man, he's had to carry grief and suffering himself. As a human, he's had to carry his own kind as he experiences the dysfunction and fray that sin brings into the world, but also as God he experiences it as the one who's going to have to actually carry it for all people. The entire world's sickness, rebellion, and suffering are going to get loaded up onto Jesus like this epic version, this worldwide version of a dog pile. And he's on the underside of it. And we're all piled in on top of him and our death-bringing sin will crush the life right out of Messiah. And what he will do for us and all of those who are piled on on him, he will do alone. He who had no sin would be loaded up with all people's sin. Now, some of our just religious guilt or, uh, or maybe you're just an empathic person and it, it urges us to want to like get in there with Jesus and just kind of help him out a little bit. But all that we have to offer him is the sin which made his suffering necessary. We're not actually bringing assets to the God-man. We bring liabilities. We bring our debt. Now hear this. For the joy set before him, the author of Hebrews writes, he endured the cross and despised its shame. The joy set before him, I need you to hear this. Look at me if you would. The joy set before him is you. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. Our tendency is to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for, it's for them. I can see how they would be worthy of receiving God's grace. But this is not a plan based on people's worth. This is a place that issues out of God's worth and issues out of his strength and issues out of his mercy and his goodness and his good will for humanity. The God-man wants you and the people around you, but he wants you. Do not discount that he has his eyes and sights on you. It is finished. He has lifted our burdens and shouldered our load. Verse five in Isaiah 53, 
Additionally, he was pierced for our transgressions. That word transgression in Hebrew, it it carries the idea of criminal activity. He was pierced for our crimes, our crimes against God, against his perfection, our rebellion against him. He was crushed for our iniquities. The English word doesn't do it justice here. The, The Hebrew word carries with it this idea of our guilt, our wrongs, our bentness, our twistedness. He was crushed for that. He was pierced for our crimes and our guilt. So he is for you. He for you. What Jesus finished, he finished alone. As I was thinking about this this week, he is the rescuer and I am the rescued. I need to get my heart and my mind around that. For you, he is the rescuer and you are the rescued. So I want to ask, can you accept that fact? Can you accept that I, I bring my debt, I bring my folly, I bring my flailing and my failing. I, that's what I bring to him. I need rescue. If you accept this, you are in effect, you are received by him. If you reject it, you are in effect rejecting Jesus. Have you ever had somebody reject a gift that meant a lot for you to give, but they could not receive it, they would not receive it? How offensive is that? How offensive is it when somebody won't accept a gift from us? Jesus has said, it is finished. So our work is to honor him and to make up our minds to depend on the gift of his death and his life in our place. He for you. He is for you. Line three in Isaiah 53, also in verse five, his chastisement, this word means is the penalty that he endured. His penalization brought us peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom. It's more than just the absence of conflict. It points to complete human goodwill and flourishing, the idea of being at your capacity for good, being the ultimate version of yourself and creation, being the ultimate version of itself. That's when shalom is fully um, being realized. His penalty has brought us shalom, and with his wounds, we are healed or repaired. Our peace was lost because of our disobedience. Adam and Eve, got they, they lost peace for themselves, and you and I have also been involved in some pretty significant acts of rebellion against God. Just a quick look at the Ten Commandments, and everybody in the room has failed at least five, at least. But when we cling to Jesus, and specifically when we cling to this idea, this phrase uttered by the real Jesus from a real Roman cross in real history, this phrase, it is finished, when we cling to that, when we accept that, when we take that in and hold on to that, our peace is restored. All consequences do not disappear, but our souls, our, our souls soothe. Um, our souls are like a newborn baby crying for food. Our guilt consistently assails us. Guilt often says, I have done something wrong. Our shame assails us, often saying, I am wrong, or something is deeply wrong with me. 
Our fear assails us. Our souls are like newborn kids screaming. And if you know, you know, newborn screams are next level. That's why you chuckled. Now, the relief when a newborn baby who is screaming experiences when it is soothed is a good thing. But the relief also that everybody in the room or in proximity to that child experiences is also next level. Our New Testaments say, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Our consciences are soothed. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul will write, and he'll close Romans 15 by saying, may the God of hope, the God of hope, not the God of condemnation, the God of hope, fill you, church, Christian, with all joy and peace in believing, in trusting Christ, in trusting this phrase, it is finished, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, more and more and more rejoicing. When we come to know that the love of Christ is for us, we experience peace and we are freed to abound in hope. Now, every single follower of Jesus who experiences his grace, the soothing of soul rejoices. And here's something to ask ourselves. If you lack joy, if you lack gladness, if you lack relief, it may reveal that you have forgotten the cross and not given it a central place in your thoughts each day. I think there is a good assessment at hand here. If you lack joy in Jesus Christ, relief from Jesus Christ, and just gladness that you are a part of his community, it may reveal that we have not given a central place to the cross in our thinking each day. Relief, joy, and gladness, it doesn't always come at once. There are times that it disappears for weeks. It disappears for months. It disappears for years. Sometimes it disappears for decades. But because God is faithful to his people, it does come in waves and it will continue the rest of our lives to just wash up on the shore of our lives. He never stops pursuing his people. And one thing that the cross does is, is it additionally in our community, in our in just human level community, it opens, us up, it opens us up to be honest. Yes, with God, but it also opens us up to be honest with ourselves and with other people too. Listen to this quote from the Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. He writes, the deeper I go into the gospel, the more I comprehend and confess aloud the depth of my sinfulness. A gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, whenever I consider the necessity and manner of his death, along with the love and the selflessness behind it, I'm laid bare and utterly exposed for the sinner I am. Such an awareness of my sinfulness, it doesn't drag me down. Well, there's a turn. But actually serves to lift me up. What? By magnifying my appreciation of God's forgiving grace in my life. And the more that I appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness of my sins, the more that I love him, 
and delight to show him love through heartfelt expressions of worship, end quote. When we see the depth of our sinfulness and the heights of God's holiness and we see a cross bridging that, that gap, we are freed to worship. This diagram on the screen is a helpful way to think about this. The line on the left is a timeline of your life and the point at which those, those lines begin to diverge is the moment of conversion. It's the moment when you begin to see your own need of God and you begin to see that he is altogether holy and that we cannot, like, we cannot get there in our righteous deeds and acts and thoughts and actions. And at that moment of repentance and faith, we recognize that the cross of Christ, it brings bridges this gap between our awareness of God's holiness and our awareness of our own sin. And if you're anything like me, the more that you live and live and live, you become more and more and more aware of the things that you are actually capable of. I thought I had it all together. No, I didn't. And as our death, as our awareness of our sinfulness grows, it's not that our sin, it's not that we actually become more sinful, it's our awareness. The more we walk with Christ, our awareness of our sinfulness begins to grow. But simultaneously on that top line, our awareness of God's holiness begins to grow and something must fill the gap. And the good news of the gospel says that our awareness of the cross can grow with it as well. And more and more and more we live, that gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the chasm is greater and greater and greater and something greater is needed to bridge that gap. And it, there's not anything that ever replaces the cross of Christ, but our awareness of the cross and the depths, that, the, the lengths that God has gone to atone for his people are actually greater and like Milton Vincent said, our, our, our hearts begin to lift because we, we begin to realize, whoa, 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 God in my place, even for that? I thought, like, I've been walking with Christ for 15 or 20 years. The Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter had been walking with, he'd lived with Jesus in his earthly ministry for three years. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Peter is leading the church for another 14 years after that. Paul comes along on the scene and has to rebuke Peter in Galatians chapter two because Peter forgot the gospel. Peter, you're like, yeah, I know it was Peter. Of course it was gonna be, it was gonna be anybody. It was gonna be Peter. But that's you and I too. We forget. And God himself bridges the gap for us. The cross frees us to live in awe. And something else the cross does is it destroys our pride. Because the more and more we think we have it all together, we stumble and fall and we need that cross to continue to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. It also conquers our terror convincing us and confirming for us that God actually will accept us. As bad as it is, he still accepts me. It promotes awe. Here's where I'll conclude with this quote from J.I. Packer, and then I'm just gonna give you one application. We'll go. J.I. Packer says this, there's unspeakable comfort, the sort, that, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. It's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me 
so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned with myself. Some of you need to take a screenshot of this and just read it a few times. It doesn't quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see and that he sees more twisted corruption in me than I even see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize his purpose. Praise be to God. Here's one thing, one quick application point, and then we're done. First, I don't want you to ask how you feel about this. That's important. There's a feeling that comes with this good news. I want you to first ask, do I believe it? Do I believe it is finished? Activate your your mind and your reason and your will. Do I believe that it is finished? If your answer is yes, you need to know that Jesus never relates to you based on how well you are doing. Never. On your worst days of regret and sinfulness and folly and faithlessness, he is for you. And on your best days of faithfulness and fruitfulness, he is for you. Is there anyone better than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose mercy is new every day? You can answer that question. No. Imagine, here's, here's some takeaway, maybe some way to put it into practice in your life. Imagine it, the impact if Jesus' last words became your own first and last words of your every day. You wake up in the morning, you got a fresh slate, man. It is finished. I'm secure in Christ. You go to bed with a, 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 you know, a trail behind you of relational destruction. You still got to like make right in the lives of the people around you, but you can go to sleep, lay your head on your pillow and say, thank you, Jesus, it is finished. I am secure in you. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to do to receive the acceptance of Jesus Christ. His last words, it is finished, are not funny. And they are not tragic. They're the best news of your day every day. For those who place your faith in Jesus Christ, it is finished, is the pathway to awe and uplift and worship. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we, we believe and we don't believe and we believe and we don't believe. You're with us. So help us to believe in the recesses and the the territories of our hearts that are still cold and held back from you. Help us to believe in the territories of our heart that are just rejoicing right now and saying, no, it's too good to be true, but I do believe it. Would you help us to rejoice and to experience gladness? Would you help us to forgive one another out of what we have been forgiven of? Would you help us to live lives that are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Unafraid, to comprehend as much as our minds are able your holiness and also unafraid to see as much as our hearts and minds are able the depths of our own sinfulness and flesh. Help us to place that cross at the center and to put no conditions on it. The man on the middle cross said 
we could be family. And so we are. We love you, and we thank you for this kind of news. In Jesus' name, amen.